Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, John Mesberg, and today we have in the studio Simon Cisneros. Am I Close. saying that right? Cisneros. Cisneros. Oh. See? You got it. Got it. <laughs> Good uh, job. She is a progressive activist and Ooh. a whole lot more. Wow. Quite the... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Uh, Simon, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. happy to be here. Actually, I love the way your name is spelled. It's really uh, unique. Thank you. Um, you could also just call me Sai if that's easier. Ooh, you know, I like, like that. Like the Korean singer gang oh, style. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or like psychological. <laughs> yes. You know, I say Sai as in like psychology, and people don't know how to like, they're like, oh. And I'm like, but psy, psychology? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it just doesn't. People are not used to hearing, like, psy. I've only heard psy from, like, you know, the Gangnam Style. Yeah. <laughs> Never heard oh, it. Oh, 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 oh. And I asked her to wear the, uh, a mask today because of COVID. And she showed up with this uh, great uh, Apple mask. And uh, she says that this isn't what it actually is. But I thought it was representative of... A few bad apples, like, like maybe like in reference, like the police. <laughs> yeah, like but. the police, and you know the whole tree that upholds <laughs> racism. You know, like we, like I think what people get wrong is that we see racism as like it's you know isolated to a few bad individuals, a few bad apples, but um, we're all responsible for upholding the system that you know racism can thrive, and one of those things is uh. Uh, I think white people get wrong is that we're just different from. Oof. Oh, you're fine. Oh, I'm fine. Okay, just cool. don't hold it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, COVID. That's right. Oh no, just more because of the sound. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. So white privilege. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> First of all, show show everyone. Turn this way and see the other apple. Can you see that? It's got like a a mustache. Wait, wait. That one. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty good. Isn't the idea, wait, isn't the idea that, like, if there are five bad police officers in a room of 100, but the other 95 don't, like, tur- like flip on them, then, like, they're all kind of bad apples. Yeah, exactly. Which is uh, arguably worse than, like, the people who are malicious about it. Because, like, if you say nothing, do nothing, then you mean nothing, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a choice. Like, people are like, oh, I'm not going to participate, but you don't hold other people accountable. That's also an issue, you know? Yeah. So we're we have a whole section that we're going to talk about uh, black rights and uh, po- the, the involvement of, you know, police brutality. But I wanted to start off this interview by just talking in general about, like, 2020 and how it's been a crazy year. Um... You know, I think because of everything that's been going on that America has, like, some some Americans have become kind of disengaged and apathetic to, to what's been going on, maybe for their own mental sanity. Mm. And I think, I don't know, I think that, like, when people are disengaged, they become uninformed. If they become uninformed, things are less likely to get better because people are just, they they don't, they don't even know what to change. And so... um how do you think we can, as a country, reverse that trend that's been happening where people are starting to tune out? Like, how do we get people to be motivated to want to get involved and in, say, like, uh, politics on a local level that would promote progressive change? Like, what do you think about that? Uh, I, 
education, um, educating ourselves and trying to educate other people, um, both of us being white, especially other white people who might or might not be on the Black Lives Matter movement. Because um, some people just, they only know what, like, you know, the media posts, like, they just show the riots or the, the looting or whatever. Um, but there's more to it than that. Like, we have to ask, like, why are people, like, so poor that they're doing this? Because, like, um, they're they're not doing it because, you know, they want to. No one wants to, like, <laughs> like, no one wants to sleep on the street and no one wants to, you know, do any of that, like, any of these bad things that we see as criminal. Like, say uh, someone steals, I don't know, bread. I feel like that's very, <laughs> like, who's stealing bread? But, like, um, why do people steal why do people resort to these things? Like, and why why is it that we don't have to necessarily resort to those things to survive? You know, because it's all about survival. Like, these they're just trying to survive like the rest of us. Like, we work, you know, we eat, we go to college or whatever else to survive. We we try to we're working towards that American dream, right? But we also have a privilege to be able to do so, being white and being able to not be perceived as criminal or being um discriminated against for being brown or black so how would you say that ties into um getting people to want to be like motivated to get more involved in local elections well we should recruit other white people who would be on the same page or either try to like you know like maybe uh take angela davis's words and like try to convey them to people coming from us because um other white people would rather hear from other white people right like um I, maybe well, I, I think maybe we have a bias for like listening yeah. to people that look more like us and unconscious bias yeah you know not like that we want to but that's just like uh the system that's in place the society that we have made the path of least resistance i recently read in my gender studies class that's mm. like kind of what helps uphold everything because if we say nothing you know there's no social resistance but um, if we do say something, then things might change, or maybe people will start asking themselves questions like, is what I'm doing right? Is it wrong? Or why do I do these things? Why do other people do these things? Like, we have to ask these questions. We have to question ourselves more than we question other people, you know, because we're part of it, even if we choose to participate or not, because we, we are, you know, it's a system, the tree, bad apples. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, but if you mean like, I'm just re recruiting people, right? No, I just think, I think that like, okay, like there's just, there's a lot of people in the city that like say Seattle that maybe have become so jaded and disheartened with, um, how our local government, uh, has responded to certain things that they just think things aren't going to get better. And instead of wanting to get involved themselves and try to change it, they've just totally disengaged and stopped like paying attention. And so I think like, how do you get that motivation back? Like I have a lot of friends that don't, I don't, I think they, um, they don't think that, uh, maybe their voice is heard or maybe that anyone cares. But my understanding is that local elections, matter more than federal elections but for some reason people only seem to care about who's the president but then like people aren't paying attention to like what's happening in their own city and wanting maybe to get more involved in um you know i saw 
I saw this um, article from the ice cream company, Ben and Jerry's. Apparently, <laughs> they're like super active uh, politically. And they, I wonder if I could pull it up. Yes, please. But uh, let me see. It's, I think it was like, why local elections matter or something like that. Let's see. Oh, here it is. Why local races matter more than ever. Check this out. So like the, I think the gist of it was, was, um, this right here, um, that a good portion of our local taxes goes to fund education and school boards. And we have a big say on how that money is spent and like education impacts like how people think. That's mm-hmm. that's a big part. Um, it says if if you're tired of of driving into potholes on your commute to work, and you start to wonder why you can't take a bus or a train, like we're blessed in Seattle, we have great infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But like some cities, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, where like no, like they barely had a bus system, and even if you took it, it was like sketchy. Like <laughs> it was like I don't know, it wasn't very great. But then, um, like, um. Uh, I think like a topic we're going to get into, it says local prosecutors are the single most powerful people in the criminal justice system when it comes to deciding who goes to jail or prison and who doesn't. And it's like, uh, we care so much about how like SPD is um, treating people, specifically people of color in a way that's fair. And one of the best ways that we as citizens of the city can ensure that that happens is by being more involved on a local level in our government to see like where the money, where our taxes go, what we're paying for, what we're giving up and prioritizing that so that um, we're funding the right activities and, um, and not, and making sure and holding, holding police officers accountable when something is done that we don't think is just right. So I don't know. I just thought that this whole concept of, of caring more about a local elections were important. Absolutely. But, it all matters. Yeah. Um, so, but I think, I think that w- when it comes to like motivating people to, to to want to be more involved on a local level like what would you say to those people that don't feel very motivated they feel disengaged well um our seattle would be way better if more people were engaged in it because then you know i think that we could really see some progressive change yeah because like at chop you would see people you know uh, the activists the black activists working day in and day out like on marches or speeches and like um, I heard there's a there's a bit of division in there, but they all wanted the same thing, you know. Um, black and brown people just want to be able to safely, you know, just thrive like we do. So um, in order to get people on board, I think CHOP was a good idea because a lot of people that I don't think were really into politics or whatever, like, went and just wanted to see what was going on. Like, they went and then there's people making food. They're giving out free food at CHOP. And like they were painting murals all over, like that giant Black Lives Matter mural, and that that was just like so cool to see. Their kids, families, everybody went, and I think that was just so important to see. Um, I I think having stuff like that, like a community outreach of some sort, which I feel like I'm I'm sure Seattle has, but I haven't really heard about them. I have to like you know do some my own research. Like 
I think if we, you know, reached out to our communities more and like help people that lived here, we it would be better off. Like um local elections is a good one. I'll be honest. Um I just got that giant booklet, you know, that talks about the the people that are up for a vote. Um I just like I didn't read all of it, but I feel like people <sighs> I'm trying to get myself to read it because I think we all could benefit from knowing like who we are voting for, or who are going into state government, because then we would have people that represent us. Because right now, I feel like we have people that only represent a few, like mm-hmm. uh, the privileged people in Seattle, which is, you know, um, not enough. There's a lot of people here. You know, and it's important that we represent all of them because because e- they equal live here. representation. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this is so important. Like, it would, the city would be so much better. I mean, the city thrives because we have so much diversity here, you know? And it's like, like with COVID, I'm seeing a lot of, like, mom and pop shops close down. And it's just like, we need those people because they help this city, like, thrive. Like, you know? Um, but what's what would be great is to like help these people maybe that are having issues like you know those small mom and pop shops that might need like some funding to like survive kind of like how <laughs> you know airlines are getting bailouts like so the state could help you know could reach out to us and not just like ask us to vote for who we want like we need people that reach out to communities and be like what do you need from us you know what i mean yeah um, and listening to um black and brown folks so it sounds like to to summarize a little bit is like people's voice does matter and the more examples you can give them that their voice matters the more they would be um engaged and motivated to want to participate more in in local elections in some capacity um what would you say to people that um are motivated but they don't really know how to get started like what are some ways from your perspective of how they could um, promote progressive change in their own communities or get involved in local politics like I guess there's obvious ones like register to vote and learn about the elections and the candidates and maybe uh, get your news from multiple sources so you don't only think about someone based on what Fox News tells you to think or um or you i guess you could like volunteer in some way but like Mm -hmm. what do you think um i think one way to start is to maybe like start out helping like say our own neighborhoods like say i live in the u district i like go there maybe to the uw's like how what can i do to help out my community you know what can i do to help the students or you know my neighbors that live here you know Mm -hmm. to start at a super like micro level and then maybe like work to like build up to work with other people in the surrounding community because i feel like if you know there's like i feel like you need like the groups that kind of lead up to like you know then it would we would be more represented because everybody's working together you know Mm -hmm. but that like i know that's easier said than done but I truly believe we can do it because Seattle seems like we want progressive change. A lot of people here want progressive change. I just, there's not enough work being done because, you know, we're here now. <laughs> yeah. So more work needs to be done. But what kind of work do you think needs to happen? It's just more local, more conversations on a, in your community that can, like, spark more conversations until there's like a cultural change or what do you think yeah like just be willing to talk to people about this and maybe like we like 
I know some people feel uncomfortable talking about these things, but, you know, the reality is some things are just, you know, not going to be comfortable talking about. And, you know, being comfortable is just, you can't always be comfortable in your life, you know? So that's just kind of like, so... It's almost like an indicator that it's important to talk about when it's not comfortable to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Because then if, you know, you do nothing, say nothing, then you mean nothing. You know, kind of, you just... But if you talk about it, then maybe things might happen because then it, you have this idea in your head and then you're just, you just, you know, build up on that, maybe. Yeah. Well, the first step is like self-awareness and yes. having the conversation. Um, I just wanted to throw this out here since we're like less than 30 days out from the uh, election. Mm-hmm. There's this great website called TurboVote.org, which will help you get started with making sure that you're registered to vote. Um, not just for president, but on a local level, so you can um, get started with making sure you get a ballot and you can research candidates and try to be more involved in local elections. And I also uh, saw this other website called mobilize.us, which helps uh, you be more um, informed on like um, events that are near you that you can get more involved in campaigns on a local level if you want to do, uh, you know, has helped support a candidate that you've done research for that you th- you believe in. So, yes, do the work, white people, please. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, we both live in Seattle, mm-hmm. and we both got to see firsthand what was going on at the Capitol Hill occupational protest or chop, or it used to be called. Chaz, or someone called it Chaz, and that kind of like took off. But it, the official name, I guess, is is Chop. Mm-hmm. And we both had opportunities to to attend and be a part of the protests. Um, well, tell me about your experience of of what it was like for you being there. Well, I remember I was like, oh my gosh, I've never been to a protest before, but this is so important, you know. So I went, and I had a giant uh, Black Lives Matter sign. And when we went there, uh, we went to um, that area where they were standing off with the police, you know, and I just remember looking at that and I'm like, wow, there's so many people. And then, I don't know, I just, I felt comfortable. And then, you know, no one was, nothing was happening. You know, we were just, people were just protesting, like shouting, but not in a, you know, but I mean, the cops don't hear us out anyway. They don't care, you know, it's their, it's their job, but uh, my experience at Chop, uh, I, I enjoyed the free snacks that they were giving out. <laughs> That's not the only thing, but I had to mention that I love food. <laughs> I love food. But I was also really poor at that time because, like, it, they took, like, four months. Four months to pay me my unemployment. So I was poor for four months. The federal government. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bummer. But, I mean, it was nice that they were giving out food. Like, this is also to people that might not have a home or maybe they're starving, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you've mentioned to me that that CHOP was very misrepresented in not only national news media, but even in our own local news stations. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me, like, what do you mean by that? By the way, I, like, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I saw the uh, the interviews on TV, um, and I, I really feel like it's almost like they pick a narrative. Like, they already know what they want to... They already know what they want people to think about it, and they work backwards to try to, like, fill in the gaps of how to make you think that way, right? It doesn't matter if it's true. Yeah, I 
I just rem- I keep f- remembering these times where the cops were just infiltrate chop. I swear, but um. Oh, you think they were like undercover, pretending to be protesters? I like my friends would tell me when I was not there. They would tell me that like guys would come in and just like try to start shit, and you know, no one no one wants like the cops to be called or for them to you know. A- like have any reason to shut us down or whatever so we you know people would have to like like peacefully bring someone away from cal anderson but then they would just keep coming back and there was like no reason to come back like they kept getting thrown out but um it it was probably you know undercover police i I mean what else are they going to do when they're not working right police on their own time (laughs) yeah so how how would you say that the the media misrepresented the the movement oh, or the, the 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 area itself i think one of the things that stands out to me is they were saying that there were protesters that were that were um going to the local businesses in the area and like making them pay them to not like to protect their business or something like that like to did, did you hear about that? Was, but I don't think there's any truth to that. Was that from that one um, article from Fox News that happened to be, like... Probably. They photoshopped this one guy with a gun into, like, every single picture, and they're like, this is chop, it's on fire, and there's, like, a lot of havoc, and it's like, but that's not what's happening. And there are a lot of us are there, and none of that stuff's... That's not happening. Yeah. But, um, it... <sighs> Of course, you know, the media would pr- portray the police in a good light, right? Because we call them when something bad happens, you know? But, like, other people will use that to just kind of discriminate against black and brown folks. But anyways, to my point... Wait, here's, um, here's, the, here's the post in question that you were talking about. Oh, you found it! Yeah, so, like, this is, like, the entrance right here to one area, and then... Fox News photoshopped this guy yes, that's into the, the shot to make it look like it's like I don't remember seeing anyone with a gun there and I went like six or seven times and then yeah they put the same guy over here <laughs> yeah that- they're trying to make it seem more like scary than I think it actually was and then I remember my parents uh, calling me and being like don't go down there they got armed militia <laughs> they're 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 um, checking you to see if you're allowed in. I'm like, no, they're not. And they're like, and they're, they're harassing all the businesses, making them give the money. I'm like, who is? I'm like, I, I just, I feel like there's a lot of stuff coming out that was kind of fabricated to scare people about the idea of perhaps we could exist in an autonomous way without the police. Yeah, actually, um, when I was in Arizona a few months ago, um, like a little bit, like a couple months after chop was like assembled or whatever um there was this guy that was taking me to the airport and he he asked like oh so you're from seattle uh what's how is that i heard it's really bad over there a lot of protests and looting and i was just like um that's actually not really that's not happening dude i mean or (laughs) if it was it was happening maybe in a very like like isolated way in one area for a very specific time and but it's like people talk about it like it's the whole city all the time yeah like the whole place is burning down (laughs) yeah yeah and i just remember like but it's actually the cops doing all that stuff did you know that he's like oh and i was like yeah if the media is portraying it in a horrible light but it's really not bad they're just you know that that helps them but not yeah us. well to be fair i think like i do remember after the george floyd incident things were really bad mm-hmm. downtown seattle yeah they like were. i remember seeing lots of people breaking cars and throwing 
just breaking breaking cars and windows and looting. And I don't think it would be a fair statement to say that the police were doing those things. But I think that you could argue that the police antagonize protesters to kind of um, escalate the situation. And one of the things that I think that people want to see from our law enforcement officers is to encourage de-escalation of situations to to um, you know make sure everyone is safe but like not don't try to um, kick an ant pile like don't try to make people upset to where it's like it becomes this whole he said she said like like the protesters did this well it's only because the police officers did this first right and it's like I don't know. I th- I think the police could do a better job of de-escalating the situation. And I feel like they, I feel like it's almost like in their training to escalate it. I don't know. I think it is. Remember I, when they grabbed that pink umbrella? Yeah, like uh, that was like I I I think I I was there, but then I left right before that happened because then they they used tear gas on everybody after they had like a little scuffle with pink umbrella. Yo, like they even had like. After that incident, um, they had uh, shields with the pink umbrella spray painted onto it. It was pretty dope. But, like, I also think that, (laughs) like, oh, I remember, yeah. Yeah, see that? So, like, everything was, this was, like, I mean, obviously, it's not a peaceful situation. The protesters are pissed, and the police officers are, like, meeting them in the middle. But there was no... There was no, like, acts of violence or anything. And then one of the police officers grabbed this umbrella, and then they started, they maced, like, everyone in the in the whole crowd. Yeah, like, what? Like, they, they, it was totally the cops. Like, Well, they, I mean, if you want to say who started it, it looks like the police started it there. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, look, they got riot gear, and not, nobody has any of that. They maybe have helmets, but, like, you know. What was the what was that chant they were saying down there a lot? Oh, take off your riot gear. We don't see no riot here. Take I like off, <laughs> Yeah, take off your riot gear. We don't see a riot here. So I, I think, yeah, it just feels like, I feel like most people would objectively say uh, they, there's opportunity improve, for improvement for police officers to de-escalate situations like this one. And maybe ripping an umbrella from a person and macing the crowd is not, um, is not the best way to, to do that. Yeah, you think with all the money that we funnel into the police, they would have better training, right? Like what, the, the budget for SPD for last year, wasn't it like over $400 million or something like that? Yeah, I think it was, is it either $400 million or is it $200 million? It's one, I know that's quite the gap, but like something like that. And It's um, in the hundreds of millions. Yeah. It was, it was $363 million for 2019. I mean, they're like getting paid to hurt people, but I guess that's also what... Well, no, I guess that's not their official title, but like, I feel like by, we're we're putting so much money into the police department in Seattle, and I guess people expect better training yeah. for what we're paying, but yeah, I don't know. I don't pretend to be like an expert on, on this topic, but... I think that the, some things just seem very clear, like um, de-escalation is a good idea, and just for the sake of peace, you know. Um, yeah, maybe if they. That's that's a thing, though, you know. If like, like if you want to talk like reform for the police, um, 
uh, a lot of their training goes into being, you know, militarized. That's how you say it, militarized, right? Um, it's just, it would just make more sense that they already have that education, but like, uh, I guess it's just not their priority, right? Because yeah. they're trained to just de-escalate, but I mean, that's what we're told, right? But then, then, you know. You say... So- you mentioned to me that you think that the media in general is like this giant industrial like machine that we'll have to eventually dismantle or deal with the consequences of. What do you mean by that? Do you mean like um, we like the Fox News and the CNNs of society have too much power and like the billionaire owners of those networks? They it's like they have ulterior motives that they're going to use those networks as like a way for them to accomplish those motives and we need to get rid of if a media company is too large they have too much influence and we need lots of smaller ones or what do you think is the solution to that uh i think that's the thing like i have there's an idea but i think that's something that like it's a it's a global issue like everybody would have to like want to be in on like how are we going to make society where um, you know, everybody can thrive and not just, you know, the people at top or whatever. Um, in order to do that, I feel like we need, like I said, education. So important. But I, I mean, like, media companies in general, when it comes to, like, CHOP and how they misrepresented, like, what it was all about on TV, like, how, like, the way that I experienced what it was all about through Twitter was totally different than mm-hmm. what Fox News told my parents about it. How do we how do we solve for that? How do we make it so that everyone gets a more accurate depiction of what is going on in society instead of me like Fox News telling people over here this is how it is and CNN telling people over here this is how it is when the reality is they're both they're both slanted in their own ways and it's like how do we accomplish this goal of like everyone just getting more of a truthful depiction of what is really going on i think we just gotta start talking to each other about it kind of like what we're doing right now i think that's important that's like one of the big issues is like not not talking about it because then now we're like okay so how do we like bring everybody together how do we change things part of that is like being able to discuss these things in a comfortable manner i suppose yeah Because, like, not everybody uh, is, and it's not easy for everybody to talk about this, because white people, we're, 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 like, faced with guilt, but, like, we we can't be, like, faced with guilt, because we still stand from a place of privilege, you know, even with that guilt. And we're part of the reason why everything's uphold the way it is, so we have to, like, question ourselves and what we can do and, like, think differently about maybe what we were taught growing up. Like, you know, uh, I feel like growing up i was taught to not question a lot of things like hey this is how things are you do as you're told you know i also grew up in a mormon family oh (laughs) interesting yeah do you know any but no no yes uh my wife's uh best friend's husband and his side of his family they're all mormon or he's ex-mormon so a lot of people they left it because of i guess how restrictive it was i'm one of those abusive yeah abusive in a lot of ways yeah, it is. And I, I feel like a lot of the thinking is very, like, stagnant. Like, you don't grow from it. And I'm not saying that all Mormons are bad people. Not at all. I just mean, like, the way that I grew up, it just kind of felt like I wasn't growing and I wasn't questioning myself. Like, and I think that's important to, for change, you know, because we, we change no matter what. Um, we How did just, you get out of it? <laughs> 
So like, like, it's like if it's something you grew up in. I imagine it must be very difficult to like mentally escape. Yeah, um, like when I was living with my parents, I love them and all, but it's just like then there's my family and just being pressured to be, you know, the <laughs> typical little white girl, you know, following the rules, getting married young, and then having kids, and I was just like, I just want to. Mormons have a lot of kids, don't they? They do. <laughs> they do. Uh, Not just like one kid. It's like no. It's like eight, nine, ten. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, on my uh, Filipino side, we also have a lot of siblings. Like I have a total of five, and then before my dad, my papa, he had like eight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but um, but I have one, and I don't know if I. <laughs> I mean, he one's a lot. One, I'm sure. I can only imagine. Wow, yeah. but fulfilling, right? To be a parent, it is. It's just, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But hey, you'll grow. That's right. Um, so we were talking earlier about chop and white privilege, and that's a perfect segue for another topic that I wanted to talk with you about. With which is, um, I wrote down that the Black Lives Matter movement. They had a lot of support. Um at CHOP and other places from white people, which is, I guess, in theory, it's a good thing. Like, we want everyone to to uh, get behind this movement and get behind the leaders of a movement that are advocating for black rights. Like, that is a... I feel like that's an objectively a good thing. But there's been a lot of criticism around um, maybe white people not acting as good allies to black people that some of the things that they do are more, uh, I think what you mentioned to me earlier was that's more performative. And so how can we, um, as white people, be better allies to black people? Um, I found this really uh, great article over on Vox called How to Be a Good White Ally According to Activists and Black Activists. And there's some great points in here I wanted to t- uh, use as like a conversational like launching point with you, but I also just kind of wanted to hear from your perspective, like, what do you think um, it looks like for white people to be good allies for black people? What does that look like to you, for you? I've, I feel like I've reiterated this so many times, but we, as white people, need to talk to other white people about what we can do, because mm-hmm. I, I think that having the uncomfortable conversations yeah like i feel like uh part of the problem is we try to like view it from an individualistic point of view like hey how is this how am i gonna help out you know black and brown folks but no what we should be really asking is how am i and (laughs) that are white folks around me gonna help these people you know like Mm -hmm. we have to involve everybody because then you know you'll you'll progress but, you know, I feel like we just would rather, you know, do nothing and say nothing. But, you know, it, it would help all of us, even white folks. Like, if we help, like, brown and black folks, their freedom means ours. Because, like, we may be a part of the system and we, we're, we're, we're thriving, right? Or at least in one way or another. At least that's, we might feel that way. But I feel like deep down, all of us kind of feel like, huh, I wish things could be better. And I feel like this is part of that issue because, you know, we're not we kind of just like focus on ourselves and not just like other people. But that's like we need to help other people. I think. Yeah, I think you're getting at something interesting, which is that like in America, we have this very individualistic culture. Whereas, like, in some other uh, countries, they have more of, like, a collectivist culture where they all see it as, like, they're all in it 
together. And in America, a lot of people are kind of like, I'm in it for myself. And so maybe it's like people just have this like ap- apathy towards what happens to other people here. Like, oh, this other person is treated unfairly, but it's not happening to me or people around me specifically then it's easier it's like out of sight out of mind i'll just like focus on my life and i wish that people in america thought more collectively that we that we saw each other as uh interconnected and that an injustice towards somebody around us is is a problem for us specifically too that that you know just because it's not happening to you specifically doesn't mean that you shouldn't care, you know, like, how do, I don't know, I feel like this is like an ingrained toxic American, like, mentality, though, how do we, because of individualism, like, how do we get people to care more about, um, you know, racism towards black people, when you have people going around being like, it doesn't affect me personally, so why should I care? I mean, I think like that's, that might be at the root cause of maybe a like, how do you get those people to have those uncomfortable conversations with their white friends and family? It's like, how do you get them to want to do that? First, you have to make them care. And I think I almost feel like individualism and how it's like, it's not impacting me personally. That stops them from having those conversations in the first place. You know, maybe that's part of why it was good to have the civil unrest, the protests coming to everyone's city and shaking things up because then it's like, Hey, it is impact. Look how it's impacting your life. It is impacting you. Look at this, you know, that's so maybe that's one way, but I don't know. What do you think? So like another thing with, um, dealing with racism in our country, I think we, I'll, I'll use the, the bad apples thing again. Like we try to separate ourselves from the issue at hand as if we can, you know, somehow like avoid participation in this system. But like, the reality is we're in it even if we want if we don't want to be you know because that, that's just how things are you know but um i lost my train of thought oh it's okay <laughs> asmr <laughs> <laughs> but um in order to uh like we just we need to get together and just like educate other people and be willing to like change and not be defensive about like what we do and i think that's another thing that people like do is be defensive about like oh but i wasn't trying to be racist and it's like you know you can have good intentions but still be racist like Mm -hmm. the whole point is it's it's veiled you know like people don't think it's racist because it's just like so ingrained into our society or you know individualistic society that what's what's that quote the road to hell is paved with good intentions like it doesn't matter if you meant well if you're if the if what you're doing is causing a problem yeah yeah um one of the one of the biggest quotes from that article that I saw is it said something like you need to get clear on what being an anti-racist means. Anti-racism is about doing and not just knowing. Being an anti-racist is an action, it's a verb. It's something that you just it's something it's not something that you just learn and stop. It's about how you change your behavior every day. Uh in in your community, your family, yourself towards a more just, equitable society. Um, being an ally is a language and being a co-conspirator is about doing the work. You have to... I think it's about being 
a co-conspirator. That's the word that they use in this article, which is like, I guess you're you're conspiring with black people to accomplish the goals that they want to accomplish in society. So it's like the actions that you're taking. And um, I think that that's what we're kind of getting into right now is like, how can how can white people go beyond just posting an Instagram photo that says black lives matter and being like, I did my part, <laughs> you know, like what, there are a lot of, th- what can white people do? You know, one of the things that you said is have those uncomfortable conversations with their friends and family. Um, what else can you think that, that they should be doing? Well, um, like we could bring black and brown folks into the spotlight for one, like mm-hmm. say you brought, you know, a black person on here or a brown person. Well, you kind of did with me, but I'm very white-coated, as you can tell. Yeah. But um, just hearing them out, amplifying their voices, and just, like... Because they already have a sort of, like... Well, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's, But they have, like, an idea of, like, what's going on. Because, you know, they're living it regardless of whether they want to or not. And we're just kind of, like, sitting here, some of us, you know, just kind of not cognizant of what's happening around us. But um, if we just listen to them, you know, put them up. I wouldn't say on a pedestal because Angela Davis says it's not good to idolize people like that. So, so who is Angela Davis? She is uh, a member of the Communist Party, um, or was. I think it was here in the United States. Uh, she she had to leave because of um, her association with the Black Panther Party. But she was actually um, a part of the Communist Party before the Black Panther Party. And she just like, but they helped her um, earn her freedom because uh, she was acquitted okay. for, so- for something. So she, she has this it, book but. that you're currently going through right now, right? Yep. Freedom is a Constant Struggle. So what's this, what's this book about? It's about how, like, a, cl- a global collective, actually, like, everybody getting together and realizing that, um, any issues like all across the board globally, like say Palestine has everything to do with what's happening here. Like, um, in what way? Like, for example, I read this in the books, but, um, she, uh, she talks about how in Palestine, um, the military there receives the same exact training as the police here in the United States and also, you know, funding because that's it's a whole big thing, but it's just like that struggle has everything to do with what's happening here and everywhere else because like it's all interconnected somehow like say you know with trade for example like the united states just trades with everybody basically or you know have workers in other countries like all these struggles here have everything to do with everything that's away from us because you know overseas we don't really see what's happening like even when world war ii we we had Pearl Harbor, but like, then there's a bunch of other stuff happening overseas. Like in the Philippines, where I'm from, in the north, there's a lot of conflict. But I didn't learn that till like recently. Um, but it, it all matters. Like it's all led up to this point. And um, I think if we learn about those things, we can uh, finally get to like figuring out what to do to solve these issues we have. Mm. Over time, it's a gradual, <laughs> it's a gradual thing. Like it's not going to happen overnight or in five or fifty years so learning about black authors like angela davis i think this is part of the education that you can do as a white person to to understand like some of the things that have happened to these black human rights activists and what what they're advocating for and and uh i think kind of gives you like a north star of maybe how to to help help them help the cause but um 
I think another another author you mentioned to me was uh, Asada Shakur. Yes. Which is interestingly enough, uh, is that Tupac's aunt? <laughs> <laughs> I think so, right? Uh, Asada Shakur actually she. Uh, was originally uh, Joanne Chesimard, I think yes. I'm pronouncing it right, but yes. uh, she renamed herself Asada Shakur because it felt like it resonated with her more so. Yeah, what well, can you tell me about her? Um, she uh, was also an active, still is an activist today, a black activist. Um, she currently resides overseas. Yeah, and think, is she in Cuba? Oh yeah, I think she's in Cuba. Yeah, yeah she had to um, escape. Uh, Escape prison because she was wrongfully commit. Uh, I yeah, like, I watched the I watched a video on her. It was interesting. There was it's basically like before police had camera body cameras, mm-hmm. and so it's like there was this altercation where there's a shootout, and uh, you know she said that they basically framed her for murder mm-hmm. and put threw her away for life with an all white jury with like no ev- like no real evidence of. And it's, she said it was just treated completely unfairly. And so she basically busted out of prison and left the country. <laughs> yeah, the book is quite graphic, but I think it's good for everybody to read. Because, like, this is, like, the story that, you know, the stories we hear about. What are we not hearing about, you know? Uh-huh. Like, what, like, black people are treated so unfairly in this country and just, like, everywhere. And it's just, like, you know, we, we need to do better. White people need to do better. What do you, you know? say to, like, people out there that say yeah it used to be this way but they're treated fairly now what would you say to like that kind of attitude you know what i mean have you heard first of all have you ever heard anyone say something like that sometimes i'll run into people that are like i don't they're like i don't believe in systemic racism i think that things used to be bad but like we've made a lot of changes in this country and now things are better and i don't know and i i hear i hear that like that defense sometimes when i try to have those uncomfortable conversations with people. That's like the pushback I hear. Yeah, that that's the thing. Like nobody wants to like have these conversations because it's awkward and you know uncomfortable for them. But that like that's also like coming from a place of privilege, you know? Because like black and brown people deal with this like every day. That's that's their lives, you know. And like us turning the other cheek is kind of just it. Well, it's part of what keeps everything going, you know. But. I think that if we call people out for, like, you know, doing that, then they'll, like, start to think about their actions more and, like, what we could do and, like, what we could say. Because, like, it's not always easy to just call someone out for, like, anything, especially racism. But it's just, like, it has to be done. And honestly, if we do it, there's, like, less consequences, you know? Like, we should be doing it because then we're less likely to get hurt for it. And maybe, you know, maybe people will actually, like, start to like think outside the box or maybe think about others because that's another thing like people you know like the individualistic view like there's no empathy apathetic towards politics but like it's like just that's life paul i think everything's political in some way or another and i don't mean that in a way that like it trivializes anybody's struggles i just mean it in a way that i think because we say oh you know i I don't do politics like but we all do we're, we're a part of the system that just yeah it's like it's it's unavoidable yeah like in there, some way it's gonna happen exactly so we can't like just say oh you know i don't i don't want any part of this like that's so it's so bad. It doesn't help. And, you know, people have been doing that for who knows how long. Um, I think if I think if I remember uh, black people say, what, 400 years? Like, that's a long time. And then, like, all over, like, 
I'm not equating um, Filipino struggle with black people struggle, but from my perspective, which might help. Um, my uh, my dad, he's Ilocano, which is a type of Filipino, but we're not Filipino. We're just from the Philippines. And my mom's white, so I'm mixed. And from that, I ended up having white skin. And most people perceive me as white. I, I didn't realize, like, the privilege behind that till, like, recently. Because, you know, you think, oh, but, but I'm not just white. I'm mixed. But, like, people think I'm white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, like, important to realize that. To acknowledge. Yeah, because there's nothing wrong. Like, I don't... <laughs> it's It's a privilege to be perceived as white. I learned that like growing up because you know my mom and dad were both treated very differently by the cops and by other people and how are in what way well like an example good example well my mom's white and she would always get off of uh speeding tickets (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh but um that's not nothing against her you know but it's just more like and then when it came to my dad like the cops like they would just assume that he was up to no good just because he's darker skin and i'm just like that's so dumb like he's he's been thrown in uh jail before for something he didn't do or like some lady was like oh well he was threatening me and then like he ends up in like jail for like two months because of that like someone like hey he's harassing me and yeah but he wasn't he's just he wasn't doing anything you know but um that's like so making like assumptions about him based on his skin color yeah exactly and it's just like i i remember when i was younger um uh i went to a court because i'm not going to go into the whole spiel of what happened but basically he was framed for something he didn't do and um i remember looking at i I was like 10 i think it was like an all-white jury and all (laughs) all white judge white lawyers and stuff and like it didn't even take I don't think it, uh, we were even in there for like an hour. It felt like it felt like forever, though. But you know, he was sent to prison for two years. Wow. Yeah, for something he didn't do, by the way. Oh my god. <laughs> and I'm just like that must have had a lasting impact on how you see the justice system and how you see things not ending up being as fair as they could be. It's why I'm very vocal about <laughs> about it because, like, I feel responsible because. You know, it like I, I shouldn't like it. Feel like it. Me saying this is trivializing it, but I'm not trying to. Um, if I was darker skin like my dad, my life would be so different. And but I'm white, and you know that's that's a privilege I'll, I'll I'll live with, and I have to use that in order to you know maybe talk to other white people about this stuff. Yeah, kind of like how we're talking now. It's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, see, we're getting there just a little bit. Um. Could I go through a list of some of the things this article talks about uh, regarding, like, things white people could do to be better allies for black people? And then, like, if you want to, like, expand on any of them, we can. Is that cool? Absolutely. Okay. Um, The bullet points that I put, I wrote down is it said that we should be trying to listen more than we speak. Um, um, I think... Uh, one person was talking about like when you're at a protest specifically that you should be there to like listen and learn from the leadership of the black people that are there and not try to like i think i remember going to chop one time and there's this like white person with a megaphone like talking out again and like i just kind of felt like 
it wasn't her place to do that. It just felt kind of awkward. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. I saw as soon as I like, I think one of the times I went there, as soon as I saw her, I'm like, she should not be that loud about what she's talking about. She should yeah. be handing the microphone to a black person right. right now. Even if she's saying all the right things, I just feel like from an optics perspective, it just doesn't look right. Like it's you're supposed to be amplifying their voices not speaking on behalf of them i guess yeah it felt kind of weird exactly um, like that was just kind of not her she needs to stay in her lane <laughs> yeah um another point that someone made is like one of the best things that you can do as a white person if you go to a protest is to put yourself between black people and the police because you have the privilege of knowing that there will be more action taken against them if you die than if a black person dies which you kind of act as like a physical shield <laughs> and i like i remember seeing that um, in some of the protests is you would see like a wall of white people banding their arms together in the front lines. Yeah. And I think that actually did have an effect on how the police were treating the protesters, which is not, that's so, it's like using your privilege for good, but it's still kind of effed up like that it yeah. works that way. Yeah. I actually remember, um, when like, this one protest video I saw, like, they were at the White House, and there's a bunch of, I think they were, like, high schoolers or something, but, like, um, this black kid, he walks over the barricade and, like, kneels down and puts his hands up, and then, like, this white girl just follows and stands in front of him, and then, like, the police start, like, moving in, and she, like, stays there, and, like, she holds on to him, and I noticed that instead of, like, you know, attacking them, they're just like, you need to go back behind the barricade now, and I was just like, what she just like as soon as he walked out she just ran right up to him as if she knew like what she could do for him and i'm just like we need we need more of that because as a white person like more than likely the cops aren't gonna try to you know murder us in cold blood or whatever like none of us no none of us are safe but definitely it, it does help you know standing between them so they don't our black and brown friends don't get hurt you know yeah it's unfortunate that that seems to be how it is but yeah it's pretty it's gross but that's our society at hand yeah um some other uh points that this article made around um using like uh be acting as a good ally for black people as a white person um one one point is it said don't don't put your burden or your sadness or your fear onto black friends or black leaders because it's not the job of them to make you feel comfortable that you should. Um, I think there, there's another point on here that goes with this. It's like uh, something like, like you should never um, ask, ask black people, like, how are you doing? Because it's kind of bullshit. Like, you know, they're not doing that great. Like, It'd be better to say something like, I can't imagine what you're going through and I'm here if you need it. Um, instead of, instead what we often get is this emotional outreach of like a white person will say like, I'm so sad. I've been crying. I'm struggling because of what's happening to you. And it's like, um, you're kind of putting your own emotions above theirs in the conversation when it's like they're the ones that could die if they protest they're the ones that are having to live with this and it's like don't make it about you as the white person try to um just be supportive um but i think maybe that's where a lot of white people initially go it's like we want to um we want to 
show them that we care. And so it's like people, their, their first thought is like, let me, ex- let me express how this is affecting me emotionally. But I think that's kind of like, can be burdensome, I guess, to them. As, as what the, this is from what some of the black activists said in this article. I thought that was interesting. It's something that I hadn't considered. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that, I don't know. And, and I feel like, there's two ways to look at it because in some ways it's kind of nice to know that someone cares about it enough that it does make them sad, but it's like, I guess it's like a balance, right? Like if you make it all about yourself and how you're feeling and then it's like kind of comes off as selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like people like try to make it like about just their personal journey, but like that's their own personal journey. We have to like, you know, see it as like, this is everybody's struggle. Yeah. And I think that will help people like, see like like instead of separating themselves from you know the bad apples like we'll start to see as how can i you know help you know fix these bad apples but there's but the reality is we're we're kind of we're all bad apples because we we partake in the system but that's not like viewing it that way isn't like a bad thing like i don't want to be a bad apple Simon. Like, we shouldn't feel guilty. It's just more like we have to realize that we're responsible. And it's not just like, oh, it's just these bad people that are responsible. It's everybody's responsibility. Uh, That's a great segue into this next point. It says that white people should get past the shame and the guilt that they're carrying. That um, white people who are alive today, we did not necessarily create racism. but And we didn't choose to live in a white supremacist country. Uh, We didn't choose to exist in a world that we do today. But we can choose to admit that we benefit from racism and acknowledge that we have the power to change the conditions and it's better to like think that way than to just walk around being feeling shame and guilt like how can you be productive about the situation like in, instead of feeling shame or guilt because you know that that comes from a place of privilege we need to like somehow like use that as energy to like work towards you know a more progressive society you know, asking ourselves questions that we may not usually ask ourselves, because cause then we'll get to it, right? Because I feel like pe- some people are okay with the status quo or what have you, but we we need to we need to bring everybody in. We need to make sure everybody's thriving and is fed, has housing, whatever, mm-hmm. bare necessities. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're getting into like we could be using our privilege to uh, advocate for. Our, our tax dollars to be used in a way that benefits people who who need help, and yeah, I think that that's that's important. Yeah. Um, what yeah. else is this? this article says um, that we should be giving as white people we could be giving more of our time and our talent to black led organizations or black leaders that are doing a lot of this frontline work in the area. Um, you could, you know, donate if you don't want to do it yourself. You can donate money to them, to their groups. Um, join local. There's a local anti-racist group, apparently mm-hmm. called Surge, or showing up for racial justice. Let me show this. Oh, I have I have never heard about this. And apparently, there's chapters in each city. Oh, okay. I bet there's probably one in Seattle. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. That so was- this is a. A great way for white people to get more involved um so check that out if you're interested um this is 
Um, if you're raising kids, you should talk to them about race right now and organize parents at your school to look at the curriculum of what's being taught about black history. And I think it's like, there's, there is something to be said about like, whatever we program to the, the minds of our children, that becomes like the, the adults of tomorrow. And like, I think it's important to make sure that they know about how, how things have happened transpired in the past and how we're working to to do things better now and yeah yeah i think we have to like hear everybody's perspective on it because i i feel like like um did you know that uh, black and brown folks actually have uh, like you know how we have the talk about sex well they have a talk about like you know racism and stuff to their kids like at least at one point whether they experience it or not and i thought when i read that i was like oh wow because like my parents never taught me about that but you mean they have a talk about how to interact with the police to how to interact with the police how to you know uh how to live without being discriminated against or but like you know that's just you know to survive mm-hmm. like they're still discriminated against because you know that's 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 the cops and then the, the whole the tree and the bad apples upholding everything yeah um we talked about using privilege in a way where you can you know uh, help black people with your privilege um, this article said that get, get clear about where money is going in your community. Like, know how much is money is going to the police in your area. Know how much money is how much like tax dollars is going towards other programs like social services, and be more involved in pressuring elective elected officials on reallocating funds to make sure that there are alternatives to sending police officers to every situation right which is that's kind of like the the national conversation that we're having in this country is should police be showing up for every situation like oh it's a someone's addicted to drugs oh someone's homeless do we send a an armed police officer with a gun to that situation like the what is it what happened in atlanta where like the guy was passed out drunk in the drive-thru do you remember that and then and then like they escalate it to where they ended up shooting the guy. Um, and I just think that what if they had sent like a social worker there to just like talk to him and make sure he got home safe and sobered up. Like he'd still be here. That guy didn't have to get shot, you know? And I just don't know if it's appropriate to always send a, a police officer with a gun to every situation. Maybe we can reallocate some of their funding to have, other professionals in different areas to handle different things. Like it seems like it's asking too much of police officers to ask them to like deal with every situation. Right. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Like we should, instead of, you know, calling the cops on maybe a, a homeless person who might be having, I don't know, some, some issues, we should use mental health. Um, yeah specialists to do that instead of just calling the cops because the cops you know they, they they're not gonna de-escalate it they're gonna just either throw this guy in in prison or something worse you know yeah um like it, and you know it these people aren't necessarily always violent either you know like sometimes they're just maybe homeless and just hanging out and then they're just like oh you know we could just 
throw them in jail or whatever the cops feeling because you know every every cop's different they're not uh well i mean they're all bad by association but like they're not you know not all of them are gonna like start you mean they're bad in the sense that they're they're participating in a system that needs reform yes absolutely um but like if they were trained to deal with these people and not like just you know either shoot to kill or just drag them to jail like if they were able to like talk someone out of like a, a bad situation like say they were suicidal like if, if they were able to just be there for them but but they don't have that training you know a, 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 a mental health specialist has that training mm-hmm. but and, and it, is it too tall of an order to expect them to have training for everything like one person cannot be gr- great at handling every type of situation like it just doesn't seem reasonable like i i I personally think that it's if we have well-trained police officers and we reserve reserve them for situations where we genuinely need their intervention, I support that. But I think like I don't think that we need to send I think that we need trained professionals to deal with unique issues and not have a one-size-fits-all person that deals with everything, you know. Absolutely. Um, and then you you probably have less of those situations that do escalate into something bad. Like, I mean, have you been downtown, right? And you, you have you seen any of that happen around here? I'm sure. Like what? Well, just where the cops will like respond to a situation of someone either acting re- erratic or they might need some help, and it's it's someone who's homeless on the street, and they just, um, you know, it it's probably not easy like knowing what to do in that situation but it's more like it it, we shouldn't be calling them like there should be like a number we call to help people that might need some special help you know like Mm -hmm. but then there's also we have to fund that and then we have to get people on board with that which which is not impossible i think that's like an idea we still have to ingrain into some people's heads yeah well i think it's kind of sad that it's like you got it seems like there's more people on board with funding police officers to throw homeless people with mental disorders or drug or substance abuse problems in prison than they'd rather fund that than spend even less money funding social services that would help rehabilitate them and get them back into being a functioning member of society. Like, it just seems like our priorities are so messed up, you know? Like, I see... I see the arguments that a lot of Republicans make about, like, they don't think it's fair that their tax dollars should have to fund, say, like, building housing for the homeless. And it's like, well, do you realize that you're paying more money putting them all in jail and, and paying for their life being imprisoned for what's their crime, being mentally ill or, or having a drug or substance abuse issue because they're homeless and they're depressed or whatever? And it's like, wouldn't it be better to spend less money than we're paying for them to keep them in prison to house them and train them and rehabilitate them so they can get back to being a happy, thriving member of the country. It's like, what's a better investment of our tax dollars? And I just, it seems like some people just don't seem to get it. They it just, I don't know. It's kind of, it's really kind of depressing when I think about it. Yeah, see, like, there's then there's the prison industrial complex, which is apparently really profitable since they, they make prisoners, you know, work for, like, pennies. It's, it's like slavery 2.0. Exactly. Because it's like you get, you arrest somebody for something and then you make them work for 20 cents an hour. It's like, it's basically slavery. Yeah, it's, it's modern day slavery. And even in the, like, even in the Constitution, it says, like, you're free unless you, you know, committed a crime but then you know we we jail people even if they didn't commit a crime so it's just like 
what's the idea behind all of this? You know, like, why are we really doing this? And if we ask those questions, then we can be like, oh, you know, like maybe people would think about it a little more aside from being apathetic and being like, ah, it's not my issue. Why do I care? Because it, it will matter. In the end, it does matter. It all affects all of us, you know. And if we start thinking like that instead of just thinking about, oh, how did, how is this going to affect me? Then, you know, it would things might be different. But like just white people especially just turn the other cheek or you know try to separate themselves from white people that might be maliciously racist but then we have to remember that that's like we can just do that and we'd be fine but then black and brown people are still living and being discriminated against and we need to like you know focus on how we can make this society work for them as well as it works for us yeah you know? definitely Look at this pie graph. It says, this is, how many people are locked up in the United States? The U.S. locks up more people per capita than any other nation in the world at a staggering rate of 698 people per 100,000. Wow. Yeah, that uh, prison industrial complex is quite profitable, ain't it? <laughs> but it's just like, it's so... That, I wonder, I wonder um, what effect... Uh, making cannabis legal on a federal level would af- would impact the ability to fill private prisons, right? Like, because my understanding is that a large percentage of people that end up in prison are there for nonviolent drug offenses, and and mainly for for like possession of cannabis, right? It's like for real, like you're. It's just it's it's so weird to live in a state where it's completely legal and then you go like across the border somewhere else to a different state and people are still going to jail for a while for 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 such a harmless substance. It's such a weird I don't know. Our laws seem so arbitrary. What really gets me going is like how like you have like alcohol and tobacco which are like medically and scientifically like demonstrated to be very harmful for us and then it's like that i guess makes a little bit more sense that the government's trying to protect us but then you have some things that have like medicinal value like cannabis or or psilocybin mm-hmm. and and these substances are are treated like like they're demonized they're treated like they they're they're really harmful but they're they're not and i i don't know it kind of it kind of depresses me to see what our government wants us to stay away from and what they our government wants us to participate in like oh if it's harmful go right ahead and if it's if it's helpful to you in some ways then it's like they it's almost like they don't they don't want us to i don't know i mean it'd be interesting to hear from your perspective why do you why do you think that our government doesn't still hasn't allowed uh like marijuana to be legal on a federal level uh i think it's because like drugs are still overall just like stigmatized you know like cannabis even like um but not all drugs though right like alcohol is a drug and and tobacco is a drug and those drugs seem to be so socially acceptable even though they're so deadly so like what is it about like some are you know um, well, here's a perspective that might help. I um, Have you heard about that? Was it Jay Morgan had like a bunch of like cocaine on their ships, but no one ever said anything about it. There was like a news article about it. And then like no one said anything. I didn't hear about it any other time. Jay Morgan? Jay P. Morgan, I think, you know, the bank. Uh-huh. That's a bank, right? Yeah, they had like a bunch of cocaine on one of their ships, but then no one like I didn't see it anywhere else. But 
Yeah, yes. I think that might be it. But see, also, if we're being honest, uh, cocaine is typically a, a you know, rich um, person drug. <laughs> 20 tons. Like, yeah. That's not an accident. <laughs> exactly, you know? But then it's just like, oh, well, my coke habit is, uh, you know, don't worry about that. Worry about, you know, people smoking cannabis or, you know, meth. Like, or and focus. Then you, and then you get into, like, the laws of the punishment for getting caught with cocaine versus crack were totally different because cocaine is a white drug and crack was a black drug historically. And they like carried different prison sentences and they're like chemically basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like stuff like that was really disheartening to read about when I was in college. I was, yeah. Like, um, there's even this, uh, I believe it was New York as well, but there was this white couple who had a baby and like they, uh, they were having a Coke party, I believe it, it was something like that, but the baby somehow got a hold of it and the baby died, oh but, my God. but instead of going to prison, I think they got like a shorter prison sentence. And I was just like, but your baby died because of your Coke habit. <laughs> that's bad. But yeah. like, I, that's one of the, the things with like privilege, you know, too, cause like they didn't. I mean, if a black person did that, or a brown person did that, they would be thrown in prison for probably life. Like, they would find any sort of reason to be like, you know, kind of like we're trying to, like, criminalize certain people. And like, because I think drugs are just a part of, like, the human experience. I'm not saying everybody does them, but like, it's just part of the human experience. And we haven't really come to terms with that yet. So we criminalize certain drugs and not... When you say they're part of the human experience, what do you mean by that? Like, from my... My interpretation of that is like, we are alive, there are things around us that can make us feel and think certain ways, and it's like just curiosity wanting to understand what is out there and interact with what is out there. And I mean, obviously, if something's going to kill us, then it's helpful to have a government or some kind of protecting body say like hey like this thing if you do this thing it could kill you like be careful like i appreciate that what i don't appreciate is like oh this is going to make you feel more enlightened or this is going to help you think about uh things in a different perspective and it's like then having a government saying like i don't like the idea of you having thoughts <laughs> i don't want you to think differently i don't want you to be your mind to be expanded i'm going to make you think that these are all just as harmful as things that could kill you like i don't like that kind of thing you know what i mean there's um there's a theory about humans developing consciousness and one of the the theory is that humans found you know psilocybin mushrooms and um they just took them and you know i I don't know the story because that was probably so long ago because because mushrooms have been around um, almost as long as trees have been around. So it's like interesting how like that experience might have developed into what, you know, you know, history has shown and what is happening today. Well, like- there's the, there's this, there's the stoned ape theory, which is that, that, um, I guess that apes consumed psychedelic mushrooms and that kind of influenced how we evolved the way that we did. Uh, I mean, it's a theory, but it's something definitely worth like checking out, reading about. It's it's, kind of, it's interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's probably like, like maybe we don't know the whole story, but that like that makes you wonder. Like, if we're not allowed to do these legally, then this is like, 
but why I, this mushrooms like and trees and all that just grow everywhere cannabis just you know it grows everywhere like are you just going to outlaw something that just grows around us like how how, how are you going to really do that <laughs> and then you have a lot of people who are religious right that believe in god and then it's like how do you believe in god and simultaneously ban its creation right like if you believe that god created these plants then you believe that these plants were created by God intentionally. And then to ban them is to say that you don't want people to interact with what God has created for us. I think that's a strange thing, too. Yep. It seems to be a very religious people that also simultaneously don't want people to have those experiences. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's confusing to me. Yeah, I'm like... I mean, I, I feel I, like we've deviated like really far away from like <laughs> from being good white allies, but um, you know, I don't know. This is it's an it's an interesting conversation that I feel like we both are passionate about. It's okay. It all it all matters. Us talking about you know like it, it all matters. You yeah. know, all leading up to the same thing. Yeah. Um. Um. I think something that you mentioned earlier is that you know. It took four months for you to receive your your unemployment. Yeah. I had that happen to several of my friends. I mean, they eventually got a big payout, mm -hmm. which is good. But before until that happened, like a lot of people were just hung out high and dry. And um, I was reading that one way that we can be good white allies for black people is that we should be uh, advocating more that our tax dollars be used to ensure the safety of people that it's affecting most in the midst of this pandemic. Right. Like um, it's hitting black and brown communities worse than others. And meanwhile, we see how our tax dollars are used to um, brutalize people like, you know, you see uh, just in Seattle, like they we what we have four hundred million dollars a year to give to police officers. Then you look at things like what is our federal government done to help help people during this pandemic it's like okay they gave everyone a twelve hundred dollar check one time back in april or may and that was it meanwhile you look at like what is what does canada do for their people they have they're receiving like two thousand dollars a week it's like just a night and day difference i don't know i just it just seems like we it seems like the government could be doing more um and Maybe as white people, we can be trying to advocate more for our government to be helping communities that are being impacted the most from from things like a pandemic. Um, let's see. This says um, it says that the government doesn't help us economically in a significant way. They don't help us with health care. They don't help us with our rent. They don't help us with mortgages. I guess they've done a moratorium where like you don't have to pay it now. So they're not going to kick you out of your place if you can't pay rent, but it's just building up. And so what? So after everyone gets their vaccine next year, everyone's going to be in debt, $20,000 in back pay for their apartment. Like that's going to be a nightmare, you know? Um, but unemployment is increasing and it says we oh this is a good point this article said we have no protective personal equipment for our frontline healthcare workers but we have avenger level body armor for police officers to brutalize protesters 
Yeah, there's that, you know, that we need to redistribute our wealth and, like, you know, change our priorities. Because obviously the priorities, you know, the military and the cops, right? But then it's just like, what if we use th- some of that money to go into, like, mental health services or food for people, housing for people? So there wouldn't be, like, you know, say, ho- homeless people on the streets. Like, they would have housing. Like, even in Utah, they have this thing where they house all homeless people and it's cheaper than... Not leaving them out on the streets or imprisoning them yeah like uh, uh, i don't know i don't know if it's like how good it is because i'm just i'm just reading from the outside in but like i'm assuming it's way better than what we have here which is like we just do homeless sweeps on the streets like we need to put people in housing i mean there's there's so many empty houses everywhere even in my neighborhood there's empty houses it's just like why are there people on the streets but houses ready to house someone yeah you know? You know, I, I, I imagine, you know, I'm not a Christian personally, but I imagine like as a Christian person, if Jesus came back today <laughs> and he was like, guys, what the F? You have a homeless epidemic with tons of empty houses and you haven't figured it out. Like, what is wrong with you? I think Jesus would be pissed. Yeah, he fed the poor. <laughs> he fed poor people, and he, he like he he was supposed to like I don't know. Everybody acts like they're a saint, but they don't do anything like Jesus did. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's greed, right? It's I mean, what is it? What is it? It's it's people care more about themselves and looking out for themselves, and they don't want to take care of other people. Maybe there's, like, this idea we have that if we don't take care of ourselves, then ultimately we will suffer and fail or whatever else. Or by taking care of other people, it somehow will negatively impact us. Yes. And, like, you know, that's it's fair that we want to focus on some of our own things, like, you know, but then if we collectively work together, we could accomplish way more, you know, because two is better than one, three is a party, four is a crowd, whatever have you. Yeah. It would be, it's much more powerful than just one person making these decisions or saying these things you know i think younger generations understand that more and i think that it's like as as things are progressing i'm hoping that things are starting to become more like that it's just takes a lot takes it takes time for it takes more time to see the kind of change we would like uh overnight and it seems like it just it's taking more time than it's slow. <laughs> yeah, I think over time, like, people start to, like, really questioning things how they are. Um, and then, like, we're, we're going to, like, nothing's really, like, changed or it's, like, been a slow change, right? Like, say, with minimum wage, for example, like, I don't think that's that's changed much within 10 years, if I remember right. Like, it's from 7 to, no, I think it's only, like, it's, like, $7, right? 7 8 for federal, not like state, obviously, because um, we're pretty high up there. The minimum wage uh, for federal is seven twenty-five an hour. Like, and then it was like that. How many years ago? Ten. Like, why is it still seven dollars? I can't. I can't live off that. Let's look at the history of it. Let's see. Like, there's probably a chart on Google Images we can pull up. Here we go. And like, to be honest, eighteen dollars, which is what I used to make being a barista, is not enough to live in Seattle either. Like, if I didn't have my husband, I'd probably be fucked. <laughs> but you know, it's just. And then like. So wait. So the. So adjusted. Okay. So let's look at the adjusted minimum wage. That's the number that's important. Why is it? So. Um. 
Why is what? Like, so, unadjusted, adjusted, like, what What do they mean by that? Um, like, inflation. Oh, okay. So, the blue line is what's important. The yellow, the orange line is not useful information. Oh. But, so, like, it looks like in the 19... 19- in 1970 is the best mi- people who earned minimum wage had it because their do- it's like their buying power went further. So 1970 was the strongest. It was like uh like basically like regardless of how much the money actually was like they're saying okay in 1970 the minimum wage was like less than $2 money wise but its purchasing power was today with compared to today it's more like almost 12. So they're saying as as uh, we move to 2020, you know, it's kind of aligned where this is where we are today. So 7.25, that's the is that the minimum wage? 7.25, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's that is that's pretty weak sauce. <laughs> it is pretty weak sauce. Like even like I said, even eighteen an hour here in Seattle is not enough for just one person to live off of. Like I live with my husband, so you know we're fine. But like that's I think they said it was like twenty five an hour in Seattle is what one person needs to like survive comfortably. I don't know if that's true though because I've never made that much. <laughs> but I assume it's easier. Yeah, I mean it helps, I guess, but. <laughs> How much is the question? Yeah, I think even I heard that techies even have issues living here, but also I don't know how lavishly they're living. If if they are, I'm just assuming because they have more money than me. But but you know, like well, even people who have houses are dealing with this concept of being house poor, where you signed up for a mortgage back when things were a lot better um, in the economy and with your job, and then it's like. Maybe people have lo- one, maybe one person lost their job. Maybe both people lost their job, or um, maybe they're getting less hours, or whatever the case. And now it's like maybe they can pay their mortgage, but now they have hardly any money left over for anything else. And oh. so there's this concept of being house poor, where it's like you've taken on this debt to pay for your mortgage, but then like it's hard to have money for other things. And I don't know, that's happening to a lot of people too. Here in Seattle? Well, everywhere, I would imagine. Well, oh shoot. I mean, the the more expensive the place, I mean, probably the worse it is. But yeah, that's. I'm assuming it's more expensive because it's a lot to clean up. Is that why? <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I've never bought a house. I wish. <laughs> but I, I think it's just supply and demand. Like the more people want to live in a certain area, the more the cost of living seems to go up. Like, like in Seattle, um, I feel like Amazon moved to downtown Seattle and and then lots of people wanted to work there and then those people bought up all the property and then it's like more people want to work there and then that causes the cost of housing in those areas to be in more demand which causes the price to go up and it's just like a it's just a messy situation and then people were like hey Jeff Bezos maybe you should pay more taxes to help fix the problem that your company kind of helped contribute and he's like eh. I create jobs, so why should I? <laughs> yeah, and I heard he doesn't even pay taxes either. I'm like, how does he have that much money, but he doesn't pay well, like, taxes? Well, they pay. Ta- he pay. He pays tax. This is the rich person argument. It's the same argument I think Trump is making right now. Is that he pays taxes in so many other ways that maybe he shouldn't have to pay um, federal income taxes. So it's it's that's a whole other conversation for another day. <laughs> but. Um, I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk to you about um, um, COVID and something that you had mentioned to me is that 
COVID has caused a lot of us to um, kind of feel separate from other people and that it's having a negative impact on our mental health. That, um, you know, we're told that we need to socially distance to to be safe and to keep other people safe, but that it's not... Um, there's also our mental health that we need to think about and you wanted to touch on music and how that can um, be a way that can bring us all together in the new normal that we're all experiencing. Like, what did you mean by that when you brought that up? So uh, one of the things I did at the beginning of quarantine, like, you know, March, April, uh, they were, I remember Insomniac was like releasing a lot of like live streams of artists and, you know, like in place of any of the events that they were going to throw in person at like a festival and then they had to cancel because, you know, COVID. But um, it seems like people can like still get together at that, like maybe have a watch, watch party or something and like watch the live stream. Mm-hmm. And like digitally, like online, they have a watch party. Yeah. Like I think even Facebook, you can like start a watch party, but like, you know, like create a room. Yeah. Create a room. And I don't know. You could probably do that with Zoom or anything, really. But it's not the same as in person. But like another thing we have to remember in this new normal is that like we're going to have to, you know, distance just for, you know, till so I don't know things get better what whatever happens but it's a good alternative too because you know like you're at home you're in the safety of your home but you're not like risking infection by going out right mm-hmm. but also there's that like there's that in person like that feel to it like you're hanging out with people you're dancing with them you know you're you're, you're just getting high off of the vibes there at the festival and like it's just so different when you're you know just live streaming something but I think that can like help us cope like um i heard about drive-in raves i'm sure you have too i have yeah and um i I've, i don't think that's a bad idea either but i'm like for me personally like since i have asthma like i'm i'm very much like i don't think i'm gonna do that like i want to but I, it's not safe for people like me like i could what if i get covid because i went to a festival like whose fault is that mine <laughs> but like i'm not saying i hope people get covid it's more like it looks fun though it does look fun wait, hold on wait let me let me show. Like, <laughs> ooh, uh, nostalgia. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's so but pretty. It looks like they're in their car. Wait, is that um, is that the one that happened? I think in Utah. I don't know. I know there was a drive-in rave at Utah, I believe, or yeah. Arizona that everybody went yeah. to. I mean, I think it'd be relatively safe if you went to something like this and stayed in your car, and you only went with people in your household the danger here i think is that this encourages getting a group of your friends together and getting in a car together right yeah because and then what what does that mean it's like you're all cross-contaminating right so and then maybe you you're so like oh i love this you get out of the car and you start dancing and you start hanging out with other people which yes. isn't bad but then it's bad because you're risking infection well you then know? plus those types of events tend to bring drugs and alcohol into the mix and then you start making bad decisions like f covid i hate covid i'm just gonna hang out with people i don't care you know and that's like you're basing that on you know an impaired mind i think yeah there's that like apathy towards like other people's like health but like that's another thing we have to confront you know like there's also a lot of i wouldn't say division it's more like people like you know uh white people being like i'm not a part of this so i don't want to deal with it it's more like we don't 
uh, call those people out. Like everybody wants, I think all of us want to go back to festivals, right? But we have to like think logically here. Like we need to keep each other safe so we can do that again. So we can freely go out and enjoy a festival, hang out with over a hundred thousand people if you're at EDC or something. Because that's just like it's just like overall not a good idea. You're just you're pull, you're pulling people into the same place, and what you're using hand sanitizer as like as you're you know washing your hands or whatever just like like it it has we have to change like how we attend these things or view them at least because i think that's we're we're just stuck on how they used to be but like this is a new normal you know yeah so how do you think it will be post vaccine like say we get a vaccine the beginning of next year which i hope happens do you think that um live music will go back to normal or do you think that it's still going to be different i guess you're you're, how are you going to know who got the vaccine and who didn't you know i don't know are they gonna make you fill out a form or i don't know yeah that's another thing and also like there's people that have like just said i'm not gonna get it and like i don't i don't blame those people because like it's kind of scary that they're rushing things and that makes me uncomfortable getting it i'm not saying i wouldn't get it it's just more like i don't blame them for being uncomfortable you know if they're rushing it like why are you rushing a vaccine like well it's pretty obvious why they're rushing it though because we want things to go back to normal true but i feel like what humans need to understand humans i'm just saying like everybody needs to understand that like i think like things might fundamentally change regardless of whatever we want to or not like they already have like everywhere you go there's like a face shield attached to every single register anything like you can't Mm -hmm. and you can't touch people and that's not i'm not saying that you know i just went to a restaurant where like every table had like a a shield between each table yeah i think that's that's good yeah and that, that that's actually good it would help us in the long run overall like we should be like more hygienic like why why haven't people been doing this stuff before to be honest like like even just like good hygiene like washing your hands like we have to tell people to wash their hands like we should have been doing this in general like oh my god i was trying to find you an example of what it looked like (laughs) and i accidentally found this instead (laughs) oh my god like okay (laughs) i i I think that works but i feel like there's a lot that's a little excessive it's got i think that's too far (laughs) come on oh my god (laughs) i just um... (laughs) don't Imagine pictures and like taking pictures in a restaurant and you just like surrounded by this giant hanging yeah. face shield. This is what the place I had was more like it was more oh wait, that's not kind of, <laughs> it was more like it was more like this. Like why is that so small? Oh nice. This, but you see like just a little divider. Yeah. Yeah. Like why didn't we do that before? That that really helps out with like germs and everything, just in general. Like, It'll probably reduce uh, how many people get the flu too. Yeah, like hopefully could, those numbers will go down this winter. I guess we'll see, right? But then also there's like, is it COVID or is it the flu? Is it both? Dude, anxiety med prescriptions are going to be through the roof this year. Uh, yeah, I feel like everybody's mental and physical health has been kind of like deteriorating, like from all this, because you know we're isolated or if we're working in the public and we don't want to like get COVID. Like, there's that. I think that's the fear everybody has. Like, am I going to get COVID? Kind of thing. Yeah. But um, I'm personally not as worried about getting it myself but more so being an asymptomatic vector to someone i care about that could more impact so that's why i'm trying to personally be more careful about it yeah i think i heard well i it might be wrong but i read somewhere that like the because you know we're still learning about covid but like apparently 60 percent like 
or asymptomatic. Like, that's as far as we know. It might not, you know, it might be more, it might be less. Cause so you're saying, like, we could have already had it and then just never exhibited any symptoms? Um, well, potentially. Possibly. Um, well, I got sick, like, about in February. I got sick in February, and it was, like, unexplained. Um, the doctors told me it was a sinus infection, but I've, I've never been so sick in my life. And I was just, like, bedridden for two weeks. And, like, I was like, am I ever going to get better? But, like, I recovered, and... Um, I mean, it might have just been a sinus infection, but it was, like, different. Like, I felt different. Like, this is a different kind of flu or something. But saying that, maybe I didn't have COVID. You know, I it, it might have just been a sinus infection. But then there's, like, what if there's a lot of other people with that same story? Like, I got sick. I don't know what it was, but I'm better now. Like, who knows, you know? Yeah. But I don't, I tested negative, so I don't, I don't know, I don't think. But then I heard that the tests aren't always accurate either. So there's that, like, you're not sure, you know? Sounds like there's a lot of doubt in a lot of areas. I just, wash your hands, wear a mask, practice social distancing. It's like, it's the, just do what you can. Um, take things that help boost your immune system so you can fight it off if you get it. I mean, what else can you do? Exactly, because that's the best we can do right now. Yeah. Um, but you, back to the original uh, topic of, like, how music can help us uh, connect and get, kind of help us with our mental health during COVID. You mentioned that there are some black uh, musicians that people should uh, look into. Um, I think one of them was... Frankie Knuckles, another one was Nina Simone. Do you want to talk about either of them? From what I understand, Frankie Knuckles was uh, invented house music, and um, I watched a mini documentary on him. And it it's was called Unsung. Yeah, Unsung. You, I think I sent that to yeah, you. Yeah, I checked it out. Yeah, did you like it? I had no idea of the origin of the term house music. That it was. They said in the documentary that it was from. Uh, the term warehouse it used to be called warehouse music because mm -hmm. they this guy was creating music in a warehouse and then it was a different genre that no one had heard of and then they had they were making copies on tapes and handing the tapes around chicago and people were saying like what is that what kind of music is that that's warehouse music that's they're making it in the warehouse and then that slowly got shortened down to the term house and i'm like oh it's yeah, it's just fun to hear like the origin stories of where like things come from so i thought that was interesting yeah and it just like explains like you know festivals today because now everybody's into edm right like everybody wants to go to a festival and i think that's pretty cool that we got to learn like where that all came from because i think what we also forget to do is like recognize these people because um i think recently frankie knuckles passed away unfortunately rest mm -hmm. in peace frankie knuckles but like I didn't hear about him until, like, I, I, I sought out that information, and I was just, like, so sad, because, like, he is so good. Like, I would I would be so happy to see him live, if only, you know? So check out check out uh, Frankie Knuckles. That's a great artist to check out. And then another artist that you had mentioned to me is Nina Simone. So what can you tell me about her? Um, I, from my, um, also from my understanding is Nina Simone was the original blues singer, um, she's known as the High Priestess of Soul, apparently. Ah, so the, the the creation of soul music. Now that's beautiful. But and there's a there's a documentary about her, right, on Netflix. Yeah, what happened, Miss Simone? And um, I think what really like are they is that like asking 
the general public the question or is it asking her i wonder like what does that mean so her daughter uh directed the the documentary and i think that's like maybe her asking her mother uh like what what happened because like oh like tell me about it yeah like um so you know nina simone just like starts out just you know doing music because you know she's trying to make a living but then she found like a way to like make it more personal now then she turned into a, an activist and um i i think that's what like we i never i haven't heard of nina simone till i looked up that netflix documentary and yeah. like she, i had not heard of her like specifically but i had heard her sing certain uh songs like if you go on if you go on youtube and type in let's see nina Forgy. nina simone um like i've heard her sing feeling good before but i didn't know it was her singing it things like that like she's she's got some big hits that she's saying and it's just like i never realized it was her who sang it but um so but you've seen this documentary i have too but um we recommend people check this out it's part of the black lives matter collection apparently absolutely we need to start listening to black women more please amplify their voices there you go I mean, uh, upvote <laughs> <laughs> just did it um and then you also sent me this interesting clip of how music has the ability to um be very powerful um it was like this guy who had alzheimer's and they were playing it what tell me about this so he apparently wasn't very responsive to anybody till like after he started listening they like put in like headphones and started playing music that he listened to when he was younger and like he just came alive like like look at that he just like (laughs) (laughs) he's having a good time and he's like talking and i think context wise like before the music like they would ask him questions about himself and he couldn't answer any of them yeah he was just very like not really like responding and he's so responsive after music and then even after like he was talking to them as if you know he was he didn't have alzheimer's yeah like totally different i think what i got from this is like they would use the music to trigger they play a song and then they'd ask him questions about the song about like where was he when he heard the song or and they would be able to pull out memories from him around the song itself and it's almost like the song was the anchor to get him to start remembering yeah like i think it i don't know maybe does something for our brains that where we can just somehow like connect the dots so much easier or maybe we just like you know you associate a song with a memory right and you'll I, I think everybody does that, and I think that's... That's why some people have, like, songs they can never listen to again, because they associate it with, like, a lover and a yeah. breakup. They're like, oh, I hate that song. <laughs> I totally feel... I think we all, like, have had that... A few songs or that one song where, like, yeah, I'm not listening to it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but that's also another thing. Like, that's how powerful music is. Like, yeah. it, just like that, our mood changes, either good or bad. Like, wow, that's beautiful. And, like... Then you have people who can make music, and then everybody's like, ah, dancing to it. Like, that is part of what can bring people together, is, like, making music and just, like, bringing people together because they like the same music. But I guess we have to do it in a socially distant way now, because, yeah. you know, um, COVID. Yeah. Ho- we- hopefully not for too much longer. Hopefully we'll have some solutions that'll show up in 2021 that'll make things 
so we can be around people again more. Yeah, yeah. hopefully in the next year or two uh, or five. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? How long is it going to be? I I think I think that we will have a vaccine that people will begin taking the beginning of next year. I think there will be some people that will be afraid to take it. I think that the people that are brave enough to take it first will be like the test testers of it. And then the more, um, I think the, the longer we go where we see that there are not negative side effects from the people who did take it, more people will get on board with taking it. And I think then we'll have more of a, an immune society and it'll help um, reduce the uh, appearance of the virus. And then I think things will slowly start to ramp up back to normal. And I think it's it'll probably take the first half of 2021 before we start to see things really start to feel a little different. But at least we have somewhat of a roadmap of how how it'll go back to normal so normalish normalish but yeah. what about the anti-vaxxers though that won't take it at all well i mean <laughs> but there's there's what there's 400 million people in the country i think what's important to focus on is what will what will most people do true yeah, yeah. but then we gotta i guess in a way to include everybody in on the same page we would have to figure out like how we can convince those people that might not take it like why it would be in their best interest at interest as well as anybody else's to just you know take it this is just like how we started this interview with which is how do you get people to be motivated to get involved with local elections how is it in their best interest to get involved in local elections like you always have to find ways to make it so that it's like what is in it for you to to get people to be motivated to want to do it absolutely connect yeah. the dots you know yeah. it's all part of the big same stew you know yeah. we're all part of it same stew simon i want to thank you for being on the show <laughs> thanks for having me um it's been a pleasure speaking with you and discussing all these interesting topics i wanted to give you the final word though if there's anything you'd like to say to our viewers before we go um uh it's the floor is yours is there anything you'd like to say black lives matter yo <laughs> all right uh well thanks for being on the show and uh we'll see you in the next one have a good one